Hi, I'm Andy Sohn. Camp Arcadia and Church Extension Fund are two of my favorite ministries. I came to camp for teen and family weeks and worked on staff there for four of the best summers of my life. I grew in mind, body, and spirit. CEF's mission to help build God's kingdom is integral to places like camp that make ministry happen. CEF provides loan and investment options for Lutherans and other ministries. To learn more about how you can get involved, visit mi-cef.org. Church Extension Fund, building the future in Him. Welcome to the 2022 season of the Arcadia Cast. Camp Arcadia's Dean and Lecturers program recorded live in the assembly during the 100th anniversary season. In groupings of episodes, we will feature each series of lectures shared during camp's 2022 season. So grab your cup of coffee and imagine Lake Michigan out the windows to your right as you tune in and join the camp community in listening and learning. This week, we've been talking about cosmopolitan Christianity. On our first day, we talked about the cosmopolitanization of the world, that even if we didn't want to have them around, the other is always there, or rather here, next door, living in our house, serving us our meals, giving us our paycheck, whatever it might be. And I mentioned along the way, as we've been talking about how we might navigate this diversity and difference, that if we look at the other with a posture or a perspective of fear or anger or aggression or defense. I I quoted a colleague and friend, John Huckins, who founded the Global Immersion Project, that said, if we think about it that way, we ask a certain set of questions. Questions about building borders, questions about attack, questions about how we might keep them out, rather than questions of hospitality and love and graciousness. Now, I mentioned that John actually lives this out, and he lives in San Diego, and he leads a program among many others, and one of them is called La Posada Sin Fronteras, or the Posada Without Borders. No matter the president, the policy, or pandemic, Christians from the Tijuana and San Diego areas gather each December to celebrate the coming of a Jesus who crosses every border and boundary that divides. And this year, they'll celebrate the 29th annual La Posada Sin Fronteras. La Posada is a reenactment of the Bible story of Mary and Joseph, who, if you remember, also fled persecution and danger to transcend and transgress boundaries and seek refuge in another land. And so La Posada has become a venerated Christmas tradition across the Americas, and especially in Latin America. Every year, at the U.S.-Mexico border between Tijuana and San Diego, border dwellers and border crossers, border guards and border deniers, border defenders, border endangered and border dreamers come together on both sides of the border to remember those in the past year who lost their lives crossing it. And they read aloud as part of the Posada every single name of the people who passed in the previous year. In our time, in times of distress about global borders, borders in the U.S., borders around Europe, borders elsewhere, imperial borders, armed borders, disputed borders, there is much to talk and think about. And amidst all the news and amidst all the headlines and amidst all the politics and plans and posturing, what concerns me most as a pastor, but more importantly as a person of faith first, is that the idea of welcoming the stranger has come under attack. 
And so in these times, celebrations and stories like La Posada take on added significance. When borders and their narratives are disputed, the story about those borders also becomes disputed. Who put them there? Are they natural borders? Who defines what a natural border is? What does it mean to transgress a border, to defend a border, to build a border? And how might we, as cosmopolitan Christians, respond, act, and pray around this issue of borders? As we leave Camp Arcadia and we enter back into our daily lives, we will face many different challenges in being cosmopolitan Christians. And I wanted to use one issue, one very uncontroversial issue, to talk about the end of the week, about how we might put this into practice. And so I decided to talk about the U.S.-Mexico border and immigration. <laughs> Chad said he was in a good mood. I'm going to ruin it. There are real problems at the U.S.-Mexico border, and today is not about convincing you to vote in a particular fashion or to change your political position about the borders. That's not what I'm here to do today. I don't care to be a politician. But for me, the real problem is that often Christians are neglecting the humanity of all those at, across, and in between the borders. And so today we're going to use this problem as a means of reflecting on how we, taking all we've learned and explored and wrestled with over the last few days, can be cosmopolitan Christians today. Research has shown that nativism has become a core guiding value for many Christians in the U.S., and Christian nationalism, affirming Christian primacy in the American public sphere, has become a strong predictor about what people think about a whole range of issues, including Islam and Muslims, gun control, po police shootings, atheists, gender roles, and many other different political bombs. Christian nationalism, though, for our conversation today is particularly strongly correlated with anti-immigrant sentiment. And so there's this heady mix of nativism on the one hand and Christian nationalism on the other that has grown more closely related in the past several decades in our churches, among our fellow Christians, and perhaps in our own hearts. People who identify or who are found to be having attitudes of Christian nationalism and nativism tend to view undocumented immigrants from Mexico or other places as mostly dangerous criminals. In their book, Taking America Back for God, Andrew Whitehead and Sam Perry talked about this issue, and they wrote this. Those who see being Christian as central to being American tend to be highly resistant to the idea that immigrants, even Christians who have been here in the United States for years, those who cannot speak English, and those without an American ancestor, as they define it, can be truly American. They remain, or they are, indelibly them, not us. In January 2018, a poll found that a staggering 75% of white evangelicals in the United States described the federal crackdown on undocumented immigrants as a positive thing, compared to just 46% of Americans overall. 
According to a Pew Research Center poll in May of this year, 68% of white evangelicals say that America has no responsibility whatsoever to house refugees. That's a full 25 points over the national average. 46% of Americans, as I mentioned earlier, have a different perspective. White evangelicals are the only Christian group to express this level of hostility toward refugees and migrants. If you look at every other cross-section of demographics in the United States, you will find more positive feelings about people who are crossing borders for various reasons. Jeremy Duncan, in his book Upside Down Apocalypse, echoes what I mentioned from John Huckins earlier. That type of attitude forces us to ask a different set of questions and to come to different sorts of conclusions about those people. And he wrote that putting faith in borders to protect us will always have us looking over our shoulders for a new enemy. And so that means even if we fix one problem, it's like whack-a-mole. Another one's going to pop up and we'll just find a new other to hate. Chip asked me for a book recommendation yesterday, and I, I kind of froze. But here's a book recommendation. It's called The Land of Open Graves. And in this book, The Land of Open Graves, a, a team of researchers took the four principal parts of anthropology to study migration and the U.S.-Mexico border. So they engaged in archaeology, bioanthropology, linguistic anthropology, and sociocultural anthropology, which is where I live and hang out. And what they did is they studied how migrants are moving, what's happening to migrants when they start in different Central American, South American, or in Mexico, or whatever country they might be coming from, whether it's Sub-Saharan Africa or Asia, but they're focusing on that, that migrant trail from Central America through Mexico up into the United States. And they used archaeology. So they looked at a migrant camp of backpacks and empty water bottles in the desert to see what they might be able to find out about the migrants who left them there. They used bioanthropology to look at what might happen to a migrant body if it is dehydrated and left in the desert. They used linguistic anthropology to take a look at the language that they were using around their experience. And then they used social cultural anthropology to get to know the people that were at the border. And the power of this book were the stories that they told these are pictures from the undocumented migration project that ended in the book Land of Open Graves. These are the people that the book talks about and opens up about. It's a story of various lives that were in danger and were disrupted. It takes you into the everyday experience of migrants as they move from south to El Norte. This book touched me in particular ways as I heard the stories. Stories of what people left, stories of what people left behind, stories of the lives that were lost. Here is a columbarian on the U.S.-Mexico border with people who made it to the United States, just not in the form they thought they would. The most powerful moment in this book was when they used bioanthropology to describe what would happen to a body left in the desert. What they did was took a pig carcass and they left it in the desert. And what they described was the desert collective. 
sun, wind, sand, dry air, vultures, bugs, all manner of different animals that slowly left no trace of the pig after four months. The bodies of these migrants disappear, and it's very easy for them also to disappear from our conscious and from our heart and from our knowledge. And the land of open graves put them right in front of our face to see. The Bible contains numerous passages that seem to straightforwardly exhort care for the poor, immigrants, and refugees. Isaiah 10, for example, sees God excoriating those who turn aside the needy from justice and rob the poor of my people to their right. In Matthew 25, Jesus warns his followers that those who withhold care from the poor or the refugee, the least of these, are seen as having done it to Jesus himself. Plenty of other verses from Leviticus 19, Jeremiah 7, Ezekiel 47, Zechariah 7 express similar sentiments. But today, rather than sourcing various proof texts from Scripture to defend this point, I want to spend some time with a particular book, the book of Ruth. Ruth is a story of belonging. In fact, as poet Padraig Otuama and theologian Glenn Jordan wrote in their book, Borders and Belonging, the book could be retitled, or at least subtitled, Ruth the Moab, or Ruth the Foreigner. As 2015 moved into 2016, these two authors of the book Borders and Belonging began to fear that British-Irish relations, the two of them being Irish and British, would regress rather than progress with Brexit, right? The rhetoric of Brexit, they feared, echoed a wider rhetoric in their countries. Blunt stories told poorly in order to push certain changes forward, changes that benefited some, devastated others, and polarized all. And so they went on a national tour to talk about these things. And what they found on this tour, that there was a rare person in either Ireland or Greater Britain whose family history didn't include some kind of crossing. I've talked to a lot of you this last week. I live in Germany. About 99.9% of you came up to me and said, I've got relatives from Germany, right? And some of you told me harrowing stories of how your families came here, why they came here, how they were forced here, how they fled here, the difficulties they faced when they got here. Those are your stories. Those are your families. That is your life. It has shaped you. It shaped this camp here. The story of the world is a story of migrating peoples. As Professor Mary Mwandi says, we are all immigrants and we are all here. The book of Ruth, Tuama and Jordan realize, is an intervention into these stories. And stories, they realize, can be particularly powerful to share and to discuss, to wrestle with and wonder about when we're trying to figure out how to navigate this reality. We are all immigrants, but we are all here. So how can we share the space together? Tuama and Jordan wrote, Stories contain our projections and our prejudices. And if we're lucky, we hear the story enough times that some of those projections and some of those prejudices are coaxed into a new imagination. And so the question is, can we find a new story that might lead us to say and imagine other things 
than when we are shouting at each other in the opinion sections of newspapers or the comment sections of websites and social media or shouty parts of shouty programs on radio, podcasts, and television. The book of Ruth, I think, can help us start that process of challenging stereotypes and inviting us, the hearers or readers, to consider the possibility of a new story in the relationship between peoples separated by borders and boundaries. The problem is stereotypes simplify our social world. Stereotypes simplify our social world, and they reduce the amount of data we have to process about the world. They make things easier to make sense of. For example, with Ruth, the Moabite, it's easier to say that all Moabites lack generosity, or with Tuomas and Jordan's issue, that all British people want to dominate the Irish, or all Mexicans want to take advantage of American prosperity, or are dangerous, rather than deal with the complexity of the individuals that are standing before us. But at the same time, the Book of Ruth does more than undermine stereotypes. It's also a radical theological act. It recognizes that the national stereotype of others is overcome by a new story. And it's an acknowledgement that new stories are always possible. What do we remember about the book of Ruth? What's the story we often hear in the book of Ruth? Yeah. Married before. Mother-in-law had multiple daughters, Naomi, right? They all died in a foreign land, the land of Moab, right? Right. Where you go, I will go, right? Love to shove that in a wedding, right? right. Who's ever said that to an in-law? No one. Yeah, these are the stories. And then, of course, Ruth arrives there. And then she starts, you know, gleaning from the edge of the field. And it's this law, the sojourners being acted out in real time. They're in the city of Bethlehem, right? And then there's this great scene of the threshing floor, okay? There's some subtext there, let me tell you. Boaz and Ruth end up being married. Boaz is the redeemer. It's a love story, right? That's often how we read the book of Ruth. But at its heart, the book is about Ruth herself, a widowed border crosser, a foreigner in a land not her own, a character of virtue whose national belonging was taken into account before her personhood. And so this apparently simple love story situates itself at the very places where the tectonic plates of conflicted communities threaten to crack and split apart whole nations, and societies. In the theater of Ruth, a nation is asked to consider itself by its recognition of the power of kindness, not by its repetition of stereotype. The book challenges us to welcome the stranger, to redraw our stereotypes through encounter with those who are other, to find gaps where compassion can thrive in the midst of technical and political debates about law and tradition to carry losses that cannot be grieved. I'm going to transgress into Chad's territory a bit today. It, it tends to happen because we're using the same Bible, I think. I think that might be what's going on. 
But one of the cool things I really like about the book of Ruth uh, is that it's part of this kind of wider grouping uh, of writings in what we call the Old Testament, what are better known as the Hebrew Scriptures. And there's various breakdowns of the Hebrew Scriptures, talking about the Torah or the Ketuvim, which are the writings. And among the Ketuvim or the writings are these five books, Ruth, Esther, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, and Lamentations, which are known as the five small scrolls. This is why Reverend Dr. Chad Foster could translate the entire Song of Solomon this week while he's here at camp. Yeah, that's what he's doing in his free time, folks. Okay. Now, each of these is traditionally associated exclusively with one of the five main annual festivals of Judaism. It is read in its entirety at times alongside especially chosen texts from the Torah or the books of Moses. And the book of Ruth is associated with the festival of Shavuot, or what Christians now know as the Feast of Pentecost, because Acts chapter 2 is also taking place in that. Now, the assigned portion of the Torah is Exodus 19 and 20, which tells the story of the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, the giving of the law and the reinterpretation of it happens, I think, in the human scale story of Ruth. So if you look at the giving of the law and we read it through the book of Ruth, we might be able to see that Ruth offers a proper hermeneutic or a way of interpreting the purpose of the law and might therefore alert us to the fact that kindness and love for the other rather than solely ritual purity, is the fulfilled or filled fullness of the law. The book of Ruth invites us to something much more challenging, complex, and ultimately healing for us and for the world. But Ruth can also and must be understood in other terms of the Torah, and especially Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3, which says this, No Ammonite or Moabite shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. The 10th generation, right? You've got seven generations of families that have been coming here. Add three more, no Moabites can come to Camp Arcadia, okay? Longer than the 100 years of its history. But even to the 10th generation, none of the Moabite descendants, or the Ammonites, but we're going to focus on Moabites right now, shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. In the same chapter, the law states that an Egyptian, an Egyptian, the nation that had enslaved Israel for centuries, could be forgiven, and by the third generation, their children could be considered one of the people of God. But not the Moabites. Ten generations. Now, this comes from the fact that you look at the story of the Israelites, and over time, they've had some beef with the Moabites. Sahon, the Amorite, a Moabite, refused the Hebrews' passage across what was known as the King's Highway after escaping Egypt in Judges chapter 11. Balak, the king of Moab, distressed by the Israelites' successes and in great dread of the people and overcome with the fear of the people of Israel in Numbers 22, called for the prophet Balaam to curse Israel, now settled across the Arnon on the other side of his border. And then almost to underscore the danger of the Moabites and undergird the need to distance themselves from them, in the days of the judges, Eglon, king of Moab, invaded Israelite lands as far as Jericho and oppressed Israel for 18 years. Israel and Moab had history, bloody history, painful history. And so with all this history, then comes Ruth, the Moabite, 
into town. Her story reminds us to look to the margins and to ask about who is being affected by global eruptions, bloody battles, border disputes, and conflicts between nations and peoples. The bright and shiny baubles of Brexit or building the wall, for instance, are overwhelmingly powerful, but they can also distract us from what is going on behind the loud exterior. And Ruth reminds us to listen to the little stories along the way. And I think what happens there is it calls us to kindness in the face of conflict. It calls us to pursue a different kind of narrative about those people. Now, don't get me wrong. Kindness is never naive about the world as it is. It is a choice to love in the face of division. Maya Angelou said that we should have enough courage to trust love one more time and always one more time. Kindness is that courage lived out. Kindness subverts traditional divisions by bringing in those who everyone also seeks to keep out and reaches out to those who others wish to keep at arm's length. Kindness is not constrained by rules. Kindness changes the rules. Kindness acts for the benefit of others and never for ourselves or our institutions or our organizations. Kindness sees beyond divisions or ethnicity or politics or religion and finds the common good through mutual service. Like I said, the book of Ruth does not tell people how to vote, nor does it propose a political policy on the question of borders, but it does paint a recognizable picture. Someone has arrived in a foreign country and she is aware of the hostility she is facing. And what Ruth is asking for is to be seen. It reminds us that both in a personal and political sense, a person needs to be seen. She does not come with threat to the people in this new borderland. She comes with love and also honesty. She's honest about the truth that she sees herself as belonging, even if others do not. And so when we hear reports of migrants flooding across borders, arriving in caravans, drowning in boats, moving into our neighborhood, or showing up at our city gates, we should not first be asking what harm they might cause us, what complications might arise, or what kind of villains they might be. Now, it's tempting, it's very easy, and it's seemingly innocent to like loop into conversation about what constitutes a deserving person in this context. Do we think they're kind, right? Do they sound like us? Do they act according to our laws? Can they assimilate well with us? Do they fit in without causing us a fuss? But in all of these, pay attention to the pronouns. We, they, they, us, are, they, us, they, us. They, us. 